The tabernacle, it's the portable tent structure the Israelites used to worship God in their wilderness travels. But what about once the Israelites settled into the promised land? Where did that tabernacle go? And do we have any historical or archeological evidence to point us to a specific spot? Short answer, yes. You'll explore the evidence for yourself this week on The Land and the Book, so stick around. I'm John Geiger, always glad to welcome our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Old Testament scholar, frequent Israel traveler. And Charlie, even as I mentioned that, you're looking forward to heading over pretty soon. Oh, John, I'm a happy camper this morning since they announced this week that uh, Israel's going to be opening up again to tourism. So, Lord willing, mid-June, I'll be heading back over. All right. That said, we'll dig into our look at current events as we do every week on this opening segment of The Land and the Book. As Prime Minister Netanyahu approaches the halfway point in his 28-day mandate to form a new government, no pressure though, how is the process going, Charlie? And is there a pathway forward? And if not, what happens next? Boy, I'll tell you, that talk about a murky process. Uh, part of the problem right now is that some parties who would be natural allies with Netanyahu campaigned on a pledge to never join a coalition led by him. Uh, another part of the problem is that parties who are willing to join his coalition want major benefits in return. One report surfaced that Naftali Bennett would bring the seven members of his party into the coalition in exchange for rotating as prime minister with Netanyahu. Many of those demands like that and others are, are little more than wish lists that get dropped when the negotiations get serious. But the smaller parties do expect something in return for their support. And the problem right now is even if Naftali Bennett's Yamina party joins the coalition, Netanyahu still ends up two votes short of the number needed to govern. And it's not certain Bennett will join. Uh, Gideon Sa'ar's New Hope Party, with its six seats, would guarantee a strong conservative coalition if he joined Netanyahu along with uh, Naftali Bennett. But he's one of those who said he won't sit in a Netanyahu-led coalition. Uh, Netanyahu's going to try to pressure Sa'ar to backtrack on that promise for the sake of having a conservative government. But it's uncertain if he can get Sa'ar to back down. Uh, if Netanyahu can't do that, uh, his way forward becomes very unclear. Now, some have floated the idea of having Netanyahu resign as prime minister to become Israel's next president when the current president's term of office ends on July 5. Uh, this would allow other conservative parties to keep their campaign promises while still joining with Likud. But hmm. this would first require those parties to join his coalition since Netanyahu has to have a government formed by May 4, so he would need to serve as prime minister at least into July. Now, it's also possible that some of the conservative parties will join a left-of-center coalition with Yair Lapid, but it's not certain Lapid can muster enough support to reach a majority, and a government with so many diverse factions would likely be unable to survive for very long. The one thing virtually no one wants is a fifth election. Mm. So there's a great deal of pressure going on right now in closed-door discussions. But, John, we're going to just have to wait and see over these next two weeks what really happens. Hmm. Well, last weekend, the conflict between Israel and Iran took a rather dramatic turn when the power went off at Iran's nuclear facility at Natanz. What do we know about this event and how might Iran respond? Yeah, the power went off the day after Iran held its National Nuclear Technology Day and started advanced centrifuges, allowing them to enrich uranium more quickly. Uh, the actions were intended as a threat to the United States, you know, hinting that if we don't drop our sanctions against them, Iran could quickly prepare enough nuclear material to make the West, in their words, the big loser. 
Then, less than 24 hours later, the power went off to the Natanz facility, including the underground area where the centrifuges are housed. Now, Iran initially announced that an accident at the site's electrical grid led to the problem. But then information was leaked saying, no, actually, Israel's Mossad was behind the event. Uh, it was an explosion that uh, set Iran's production back by up to nine months. Mm. Uh, Iran finally did acknowledge, yes, a small explosion had taken place, and it could easily be repaired in a few days. And they did blame Israel for the attack, and they said they would now start enriching uranium up to 60% purity from the 20% they had been doing. But the information coming out uh, makes this boast seem rather unlikely. It appears as if thousands of centrifuges were severely damaged or destroyed in the attack, while the primary and backup power supplies for the entire facility were destroyed. Now, assuming Israel was behind the attack, which is a reasonable assumption, why did it happen now? Well, it's unlikely that Israel launched the attack to embarrass the United States or to short-circuit our negotiations with Iran. Uh, that would be counterproductive. It's more reasonable to assume Israel has actually plotted this for a long time and saw the startup of the new centrifuges as a dangerous expansion in Iran's ability to achieve a nuclear breakout. Hmm. Uh, there were some estimates that Iran had already reached the point where they could produce enough nuclear material for one weapon in as little as three months and a second nuclear weapon in five months. Now, Israel has said they won't allow Iran to develop nuclear weapons because that's an existential threat to their existence. So it's entirely possible this was done to stop those new centrifuges from working. Now, how Iran's going to respond isn't fully known, but it's almost certain they're going to escalate their attacks on Jewish civilian targets worldwide. Uh, they already responded by attacking another Israeli cargo ship in the Persian Gulf, apparently doing just minor damage. But one thing's for sure, this conflict isn't over. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, as curious as you are to learn about the current events that have unfolded this week in the Middle East, including this one. Egypt announced the discovery of a 3,000-year-old lost golden city near Luxor. How significant is the find and what has been discovered so far? Yeah, you know, calling something the lost golden city is a bit of a public relations hype. Uh, <laughs> it conjures up images uh, to me of Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, well, the site is near Luxor. That's about 300 miles south of Cairo. Uh, it's the area where the Valley of the Kings are located. Now, this new discovery is a city, or maybe we'd call it a town, that was abandoned and buried under the sand for 3,000 years. Uh, it might have been used to house workers brought in to construct the monuments, the mortuary temples, and the burial chambers of the kings and queens. Uh, the town itself dates to the time of King Amenhotep, or sometimes called Akhenaten, and Tutankhamun. Uh, that's a little after the time of the Exodus, and I personally don't think it's a coincidence that this is the time in Egypt's history when the pharaohs switched from worshiping multiple gods to worshiping the sun god Aten. Uh, the corrupted form of monotheism that they developed might have resulted from their encounter with the true God of Israel. Hmm. Well, when this short-lived period of religious monotheism ended, Egypt's rulers went back to their traditional gods, and apparently some of the sites built in connection with that changing gods were also abandoned. Anyway, that might be why this town was abandoned, and it, it contained an administrative center as well as residential area and an industrial area. They, they found workshops for drying meat, uh, making clothes and sandals, and crafting amulets and statues. Uh, some of the mud brick walls were as high, they said, as 30 feet. 
Wow. Now, the finds so far have been interesting, though nothing rivaling the wealth of King Tut's tomb has uh, appeared at least yet. But in another sense, this could turn out to be an incredible find in terms of helping us understand how Egyptians lived, worked, and worshipped right after the time of the Exodus. So in spite of the hype, John, it's still a significant discovery. So maybe more mud than gold, but uh, valuable history nonetheless. That's right. From an archaeologist's perspective, sometimes the mud is even more valuable than the gold. Well, two reports out of Israel offer hope for those struggling with tumors, blood clots, or other masses in the brain. What are these newest innovations that might be coming our way from Amazing Israel? Well, the first one offers potentially a new therapy for treating glioblastoma, a deadly brain cancer. Right now, uh, there's a very low survival rate for anyone with that cancer. These researchers studied how these glioblastoma cells corrupt an aspect of the brain's immune system, making it lose its ability to inhibit the cancer and instead produce a protein that helps the tumor grow. Uh, By blocking the expression of the protein, they theorized the brain's immune system could then defend the brain against cancer cells. They tested it on mice and they found it worked. Uh, Now, they hope to begin human trials soon. Mm. The second innovation... It's a precision robot that could transform brain surgery. You know, every year millions are diagnosed with tumors, blood clots, and other masses in their brains. Well, this professor at the Technion Institute uh, developed a company called Tamar Robots, and they're developing a surgical robot specifically for brain tumors uh, that will insert a small needle into the brain, shooting out jets of water to destroy tumors and blood clots, and then suction the tissue out. Uh, The company's currently testing the system on animals. They hope to have human trials soon. You know, John, both of these advances from Amazing Israel can't come soon enough. And that's a look at current events. Thanks, Charlie. We're looking forward to your devotional later on. But first, a look at the tabernacle. Where did it go once the Israelites reached the Promised Land? That's next on The Land and the Book. tabernacle. It's the portable tent structure the Israelites used to worship God in the wilderness travels. Remember that? What about once the Israelites settled into the promised land? Where did that tabernacle go? And do we have any historical or archaeological evidence to point us to a specific spot? Short answer, yes. You're about to explore the evidence for yourself on this second segment of The Land and the Book. Thanks for sharing part of your day with us. You're busy. We get that. But We're not too busy to be thinking about sharing Yeshua. That's the Jewish name for Jesus with our Jewish friends. Here's something to think about. So you've got Jewish friends, and they seem to be ratcheted up, really involved in causes that have to do with the nation of Israel. How should this impact or intersect with your own faith in Jesus and, more importantly, your relationship with them? Eva Rydelnik serves with Chosen People Ministries. What's the connection here? The connection with Jewish people and the land of Israel very strong because it goes back to the beginning of the Jewish people. When God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you a land, mm-hmm. and he's, he showed them the land and mm-hmm. the boundaries of the land. And you look at all of Scripture, Old and New Testament, God's faithfulness to Israel in his relationship to the land of Israel is a central part. And our Jewish friends today, especially with everything political going on, as we often hear from Charlie, uh, it's, you know, it's the center of attention. And when we share our Jewish friends' concern for the land of Israel, it opens the door to share our concern with them for our faith in Messiah of Israel. Yeah, you said something very key there. When we share our concern with our Jewish friends 
about their concerns. Exactly. exactly. The things that are heavy on their hearts, they got to matter to us. Isn't that really fundamentally the stuff of a, of a decent friendship? That's it, the stuff of a decent friendship. And friendship is the open door to sharing our love for them and God's love for them and sending the Redeemer, the Messiah of Israel, Jesus. Mm, love it. Thank you so much. Great wisdom there. Eva Rydelnik with Chosen People Ministries. Appreciate your stopping by. Glad to be here, John. Thank you. Tom Meyer is a professor at Shasta Bible College in Redding, California, and a frequent guest speaker at churches where he presents the Bible spoken dramatically from memory in an engaging and powerful manner. Sharing his Bible memory insights, Tom also inspires Christians nationally to memorize the Bible, and uh, he's he's the author of a number of books on Bible memorization, commentaries, and archaeology. He earned two MA degrees from Jerusalem University College, And while educated in Jerusalem, he studied with Jewish rabbis and Christian monks to learn the ancient techniques of Bible memory. Well, welcome back to The Land and the Book, Tom. It's always good to have you in the house. Thanks for having me. Well, let's uh, first do a quick overview of the tabernacle itself. What was it? What was its purpose? How big was this thing in feet and inches and that kind of thing rather than cubits and so forth? Sure. Well, as our audience knows well, that uh, the Lord God gave the pattern, the instructions to Moses in the book of Exodus, and it's fashioned, of course, after the real tabernacle in heaven. And the tabernacle itself is made uh, primarily of animal skins, the tent itself. And uh, the actual tabernacle is 45 foot by 30 foot, and then the outer courtyard is 75 foot by 150 feet. And you could pack it up and roll it up and take it on with you wherever the cloud went by day or the pillar of fire by night. So this is the way that God chose to dwell among his people at that time in Israelite history. You wonder why animal skins as opposed to more elegant fabric? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, uh, number one is because of the inclement weather, the very hot days in the Sinai Peninsula where you're talking 100 degrees plus and plus once you get into the Holy Land, this time of year, weather can be treacherous. And so animal skins would, uh, would stand the test of time, like the people's tents were often made of, of goat hair hmm. and could last for generations. And so, of course, we might also look a little deeper behind that and see the idea of the slaying of the animal and how the animal's blood had to be shed and its yes. skin covered, like Adam and Eve were covered, and that covering of God gave the people... Uh, opportunity to dwell among him. Well, the biblical account makes it clear, and you've alluded to it, that the tabernacle was very portable, but it still seems to me it it had to have been somewhat heavy. I mean, that's, though not a massive structure, it's still big enough, and animal furs are not light. It seems to me it would be a challenge to cart that thing from place to place. Your thoughts? Very much so. That's why there are the three different sects of the sons of Aaron, the Levites at that time, Uh, Each one had their own particular responsibility of moving the tent when the cloud moved or the pillar of fire moved. And everything from taking down the 75-foot by 150-foot courtyard fence, rolling that up, putting that away, picking up the heavy furniture like the altar and the basin and the the actual holy place itself was quite a project. And uh, it's thought that they were actually labeled, that the poles and the, the, the cloths and the skins were labeled so you could easily put it back together like a jigsaw puzzle. Well, that's sure how I would do it. We have one of these uh, Christmas tree fake things at home, and 
you know, it's all color-coded and laid out. Tom Meyer is professor at Shasta Bible College in Redding, California. He met his wife, Sarah, on Mount Zion. How's that for romance? They were married in Jerusalem in 2011 and are the parents of three children. It's always a good day when Tom's around. Hey, Tom, once the Israelites settle into the Promised Land, where does the tabernacle end up? Well, to make a long story short, the city of Shiloh, which is halfway between Bethel and Shechem, right in the heartland of that high hill country in Ephraim. This is the region of Ephraim where, where the Israelites predominantly settled after the seven-year war against the Canaanites at the conquest of Joshua. And Shiloh being centrally located right on that main north-south route, that watershed ridge that would connect Jerusalem up to Shechem, that central location made it an easy place for like a political and an administrative and a religious and a military hub. And so like the equivalent of kind of like a Washington, D.C., that's where they decided to erect the, the, the dwelling place of God. So this is sort of like the Jerusalem before there was a Jerusalem, correct? Exactly, because in Deuteronomy chapter 12, the Lord God tells Israel that uh, they're only supposed to worship him at one place. And if we take the chronology given in the Talmud, which is that Encyclopedia Britannica-sized collection of Jewish history and laws, that's about four or five hundred years after the New Testament was written, that tells us that the tabernacle was at Shiloh for 369 years from the time of Joshua until the death of Eli, the high priest in 1 Samuel. Well, you claim that supporting archaeological clues have emerged that can actually pinpoint where the tabernacle once stood. Now, before we get to that evidence, let's put all this in perspective by taking a quick glance at Napoleon, of all people. What do we gain studying the history of his day? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, people have said things like, well, there's no external evidence that outside the pages of the Bible that King David ever existed. So, so King David is as historical as King Arthur. And then what happens in 1992, 1993, we find the, the, the house of David Stile at Tal Dan, which shows that he really did exist. So just because we haven't found uh, physical proof that has the name Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Moses on it doesn't mean they didn't exist. And that's where the story of Napoleon comes up. Because, you know, Napoleon and his men in 1799 left Egypt and made their way up through the Holy Land unto Lebanon and beyond. Well, even though we know they did that, because that's what his chroniclers tell us, there isn't one shred of archaeological evidence that Napoleon and his men ever did that. And the reason there's no physical proof is because they dwelt in tents. And it's the same idea with the tabernacle. You know how it is when you go camping for the weekend, right? You roll up the tent or you pull away the RV, and there's very little, if any, physical evidence that you were ever there. Even if there is food, like a banana peel or something like that, it'll be gone within, you know, a week or two or whatever, you know. And so we shouldn't be so obsessed with having to have to find physical proof to prove, because the Bible is totally sufficient, and the Bible stands on its own. All right, camping. Now you're talking my love language there, Tom. Tom Meyer is the author of a number of books on Bible memorization. He's done some work on commentaries, archaeology. We're looking today at the tabernacle and its, uh, its location. So what exactly is the evidence for the tabernacle's location? Well, if we take all these pieces of the puzzle and, and kind of put them together, it provides us with this beautiful mosaic 
that this really is where it happened. Now, first of all, you have to say, well, Tom, how do you know that what we think today is Shiloh really is the city of Shiloh? How do you know that? Well, thanks for asking. And for certain, we know that because archaeologists found from the Byzantine period, which is 324 to 640 AD, we found a church there. And in that church, it has beautiful mosaics on the floor, many of them which mention the name of Jesus, but one of them says, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on Shiloh and its inhabitants. Amen. Mm. So we know that that place is Shiloh, for sure. And so we've gone to the Acropolis, the top, the summit, the zenith of the site, which is where you would always go to look for the temples and the goodies and things like that. And lo and behold, the first of many pieces we found is a exposed area of bedrock, which comfortably fits a 75-foot-wide by 150-foot-long area Hmm. for erecting the tabernacle. And if that wasn't enough, also in that plateau there, there are like post holes dug into the ground of the bedrock there, chiseled down at intervals, which could very probably be the equivalent of the post holes that the fence outside the tabernacle itself would have stood upon. Fascinating. And it is fascinating. And next to that, we found these storerooms or these closets, and in them were the uh, remains of ovens that date from the time of Joshua to Eli. Hmm. These would have been used to bake bread for the priests. And it doesn't stop there. Uh, What really kind of seals the deal, among other things, is that right near there, they not only found three of the four horns of an altar, but they found this treasure trove of animal bones that were sacrificed, number one. Number two, they're kosher. And number three, the vast majority of them come from the right side of the animal, which according to Levitical law is the priest's portion. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Well, why are we hearing about this only now, though, Tom? (laughs) Well, among other reasons, there's a big to-do about the Jews having religious and historical claims to the Holy Land. Whose land is it, Mm -hmm. right? That's a big deal. And these kind of proofs, these kind of historical examples demonstrate over and over again that that land really is the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's descendants. Yeah. And people don't like to hear that. And, and so these kind of stories, they kind of get brushed aside or, or kind of, you know, no one want, don't look over here. But we need to bring these things up and talk about it like we're doing to show again and again that this really is the land that God promised to his children. Tom Meyer is a professor at Shasta Bible College in Redding, California, Let me ask, how is this claim being received by other archaeological experts and authorities? Well, it's pretty hard to spin it. I mean, how else are you going to explain away, right, Right. the area that's exactly the size of the tent? How are you going to explain away finding three of the four horns of the altars right there? How are you going to explain away the animals that were sacrificed that are all kosher and that are all right side of the body bones. I mean, on and on and on. Mm-hmm. And so you really can't stand. It's a, it's a weak argument to try and fight against it. And that's how, you know, that's really what the Word of God is. You can't really fight against the Word of God. <laughs> it, it, it is, it's authoritative and it's true and it's quicker and powerful than sharper any sword. And when it says something like the tent was at Shiloh, it means it. Yeah. So I bet there's some curious listeners right now wondering, are there any photos or other resources online that they could explore for themselves? We can't all go to where Shiloh was. Where would we find these resources if they're available? Any thoughts there? 
Yeah, there's a couple places I'd recommend. Uh, number one is uh, there's a weekly website called uh, the Bible Archaeology Blog, and I am not the author of it, but it provides new, up-to-date releases of finds and great resources, so that's a fantastic site. And if you're a print book kind of person, I would recommend the book The Sacred Bridge by Anson Rainey, which is a thorough overview of the geography and history of the Holy Land, and as well as the, the, the NIV Bible Atlas by Carl Rasmussen. That's a wonderful resource to be able to see the places and then and to learn about a lot of this kind of inside baseball information that we're talking about that's so important. Yeah, great tips. In 30 seconds, how should this recent discovery about the tabernacle impact the way we read and think about Scripture? Well, that's the million-dollar question. And, you know, back in that time, that's how God chose to dwell among his people. And God later, didn't he, chose to dwell among his people in his son, Jesus Christ. And that tabernacle really does, in many ways, if you think about it, reflect that truth that you have that wall that separated us from God. And then you have a gate, only one way in and one way out. Then you have the altar, right, where it reminds us of Jesus being the final sacrifice. And then the basin of water that reminds us that he cleanses us from our sins. And then once you get into the holy place, you have the table, don't you, with the bread, like the bread of life, and the lampstand that reminds us he's the light of the world, and the altar of incense, that symbolic of intercession and prayer, then finally behind the curtain, right, the Ark of the Covenant, which provided atonement and mercy that we need, just like those ancient Israelites needed for forgiveness of sins. Well, those are beautiful, beautiful pictures and just only serve to strengthen the importance of this uh, encounter. Tom, thanks for your time. Appreciate your insights. Tom Meyer with the uh, Chasta Bible College, our guest today on The Land and the Book. Hey, don't go away. Charlie Dyer's back with a fresh set of questions. I hope one of them is yours on The Land and the Book. There's nothing more satisfying than addressing a question that's kind of felt like an itch, finally getting scratched. That's what this segment is all about next on The Land and the Book. Welcome, I'm John Geiger, our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, a pastor, a student of the Bible, and frequent traveler to Israel, puts it all together as he looks at your questions about Israel, about Scripture, about prophecy. And they're always welcome, by the way, with a quick email to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. All right, we'll start with Hal. He says, I have a question on the sheep and goat judgment in Matthew 25. Most believe this is at the end of the tribulation. But in verse 41, Jesus says to the goats, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. To me, it looks like he's saying they're going to the lake of fire, but that won't happen to the great white throne judgment. Appreciate any thoughts on this, Charlie? I do see this judgment differently than most, and it's exactly because of the detail you noted. I think we need to begin by understanding one basic principle. Every individual is going to appear before the Lord at some point. Believers will have their works uh, following salvation evaluated. The unsaved are going to appear to be righteously judged and condemned for their sins and their refusal to place their trust in God. Now, in general, the judgment of the unsaved of all ages will take place at the great white throne judgment following the millennial kingdom. In contrast, the Bema seat judgment following the rapture is when church-age saints will stand before the Lord and be evaluated. But when are the Old Testament saints rewarded? Well, Daniel 12 seems to suggest 
that their resurrection and reward takes place at the second coming. Uh, my point is, there are multiple times when groups appear before the Lord, and now that leads me to Matthew 25, which describes those still alive at the time of Christ's return. The passage suggests, at least to me, that the Gentiles who are still alive at that time, saved and unsaved, will appear before the Lord at that time. Those who've shown themselves to be believers by reaching out and helping persecuted Jews will receive their reward at that time. And those who've demonstrated by their actions that they're not believers will be judged at that time and sent to the eternal lake of fire. In that sense, this becomes their great white throne judgment. Now, I hold that position loosely because we're not supplied with all the details we need to be more precise. But the fact that this group is sent directly to the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels suggests to me that this is their final judgment and punishment. It's a smaller version of the great white throne judgment, if you will, for a specific group of people. And it does take place at the time of Christ's second coming. Dewey takes us to the Old Testament and says, in the account of Boaz and the primary redeemer, would being married be a justifiable reason to refuse the command to redeem as this unnamed man did? Or would he have been required regardless, even if he did not particularly love or care for the woman to marry her? Your thoughts? Yeah, at the time of Ruth and Boaz, God was still permitting a husband to have more than one wife. So claiming to be married would not have been a sufficient excuse for an individual to refuse to take Ruth as his wife and to raise up an heir for Naomi and fulfill God's command for Israel. Now, we're not told why the nearer kinsman refused, but one possibility is that he was married but hadn't yet produced an heir who would inherit his own property. His fear might have been that Had Ruth produced a child while his first wife did not, then Ruth's son would actually end up taking over the kinsman redeemer's property and possessions. I think this is at least a possible reason for his action, since his excuse was that taking Ruth might endanger my own estate, as he says in Ruth 4.6. Question from John here as our questions continue on the land and the book in this third segment of the broadcast. Do Jews who become believers lose their Jewishness? There were many Jews, obviously, in the early church, and Jews have become believers throughout church history. Their descendants, though, have lost their Jewish identity and have been absorbed in the greater church. Are their descendants still Jews, and do they inherit the promises given to Israel, even if they don't know they descended uh, from a Jewish background? This seems to reverse what Paul teaches in Romans 11 about the olive tree. It is the believers who are cut off and the unbelievers who remain in a covenant relationship. And this raises another question. How important is retaining one's Jewishness since God made no provision for Jews to retain their identity in a majority Gentile church? Yeah, I've got to start with Romans 9 to 11. The passage you quoted there is the best starting point. From that passage, I don't believe Jews who become believers automatically lose their Jewish identity. Now, Paul says in chapter 11, verse 1 there, I am an Israelite, and he uses the present tense, indicating that was his current state. And yet, in the very next chapter, he also makes it clear that he's part of the body of Christ, the church. Uh, So he says in chapter 12, verse 5, So in Christ, we who are many form one body. So as a Jewish believer, Paul didn't see any inconsistency between those two worlds. Uh, That leads to the second issue. We all have different ethnic identities, and they don't get obliterated when we become part of the body of Christ. Now, in Galatians 3, Paul does say, you know, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ. 
And at first glance, that might seem to contradict what I just said. But I think Paul's point there is to argue against those who are trying to force Gentiles to observe Jewish laws and customs. We can't push Galatians 3:28 too far, though, because there are still some very obvious physical differences between male and female. And there are also language and custom distinctions between ethnic groups. So Paul's point there is that we're all equally redeemed and accepted before God in Christ. Now, whether someone's Jewish or Greek or French or American, the only way to God and his blessing is through the cross. And the church is participating in the benefits of the new covenant that God originally promised to Israel. Now, those include forgiveness of sin and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Israel nationally is the branch broken off in that Romans 9 to 11 passage, and the church has been grafted in. So a Jewish believer today must recognize their part of the body of Christ, just as Paul did in the first century. But at the same time, a Jewish person who comes to faith in Jesus does not need to renounce his or her Jewish heritage any more than someone from England needs to renounce his or her English heritage. You know, a believer with an English heritage can certainly continue to celebrate Boxing Day after Christmas. And a Jewish believer, well, they can celebrate Hanukkah. Uh, will Jewish believers inherit the promises made to Israel? Well, they're already experiencing some of the new covenant promises, and they'll also be part of the millennial kingdom, and they'll dwell in the new Jerusalem. So in that sense, they will connect to those promises. And frankly, all the rest of it, I leave that up to God. Hmm. Aaron Broughton has sent us a question. He's uh, formerly with the Everlasting Nation Museum in Chattanooga, now a, a pastor. Takes us to Acts 4 and 5, where the disciples were arrested and placed in prison. Being that the religious leaders were involved, could the disciples have been taken to the same place Jesus was after his arrest? If so, perhaps Peter had a chance to redeem himself as he denied Jesus in the courtyard. Just a thought. Yeah, you know, I'd have to say, since it was the religious leaders who were involved in the arrest of Jesus and Peter and John, I think it's reasonable to assume they were all placed in confinement in the barracks where the temple guards were headquartered. Now, we don't really know where that is. Uh, a lot of people would say it was at St. Peter and Gallicantu where that church is. I don't put as much faith in that specific location, but I do suspect that the area where the temple guards were housed, wherever that might have been, makes sense for the location where all three would have been taken. And after the resurrection, Peter did stand firm before those religious leaders, which by the way, should be an encouragement to all of us who aren't as faithful as we might wish. Here's a listener who says, we've been listening to The Land and the Book since its very first program, now more than 10 years ago. A big thank you to the entire production crew for such a great program. We listen mainly online or on the Moody app, although we first started listening on Moody Radio Northwest out of Spokane, Washington. Well, this listener, by the way, brings up the point that you may not be listening to a, an FM radio station, an AM station. You could be listening online or using our podcast. If you've never checked out the podcast, it's a great way to listen and to share the land and the book. You'll find it at our website, thelandandthebook.org. All right, now the question. In the Lord's Prayer, in both Matthew 6, verse 13, and Luke 11, verse 4, it says, And lead us not into temptation. And then we have in James 1, 13, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Can you clarify what Jesus is teaching here? Yeah, and I take Jesus' words there in the Sermon on the Mount to be saying the equivalent of, don't abandon us to temptation. Now, I say that for a few reasons. First, the phrase is contrasted in that section with, but deliver us from evil, or maybe even more likely, deliver us from the evil one, which I take as a reference to Satan. 
Satan is constantly doing everything he can to get us to fall into sin. So our prayer is to ask God not to allow us to fall into Satan's traps, but instead to provide deliverance. That also seems to be uh, very similar to what Jesus told the three disciples uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit's willing, but the body is weak. And it seems to be consistent with 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you may stand up under it. So uh, let me try to match it up now with James 1. Uh, When we say, you know, God's not tempting us. God can't be tempted by evil and he doesn't tempt anyone. James is saying God isn't the one who deliberately entices us to commit sin. However, there are times when he allows us to uh, be placed in a position where we do face temptation and trial. Uh, In Matthew 4, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. But it was the devil who tried to tempt him. And that's a look at your questions and Charlie's answers. Charlie's back with his devotional next on The Land and the Book. From Moody Radio, it's The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and this segment we're about to enjoy together is one of the favorites for many of our listeners. Features a devotional from Dr. Charlie Dyer. He has a way of looking at Scripture, placing us there, making us feel like we're there. We'll get to that in just a moment. First, though, I want to take in this testimony from somebody who has traveled to the Holy Land and now comes back with this thought. Let's listen. My name is Kelly Worrell, and in June of 2008, my husband and I had the privilege of leading one of the buses on the Moody Israel trip. And I suppose I would describe the trip as being a wonderful combination of both what I guess we would call the spiritual highs, those moments when God's presence was particularly tangible, and those were the moments where we were having a worship service on the Sea of Galilee, or... I got to watch my husband baptize several members of our bus in the Jordan River, or we were having a communion service in the garden tomb, and those moments just will never leave you. Um, But there was also this sense in which the trip was very grounding, sort of brought your faith down to earth in a way that it had not been before. And you can kind of appreciate, I guess, the geographic and historic significance of God's Word. Thank you for sharing that great testimony. Well, former Moody Bible Institute President Michael Easley gave me a love for the Psalms. Just something about the way that he loved the Psalms, the way he taught the Psalms, that kind of opened my eyes. I I think I wasn't giving that book a proper role in my life. And ever since then, I have just loved studying and even memorizing some of those psalms. And I'm so glad that, Charlie, you have chosen Psalm 133 as your focus for today's devotional, but begins with a bit of an Irish twist to it. What do you got for us? There's an old Irish toast to family and friends that contains more than its share of truth. To live above with the saints we love, that's the purest glory. To live below with the saints we know, ah, that's another story. That saying comes to mind about day five on a trip to Israel. Jet lag is worn off, and our days and nights are now in sync. And it's then we notice a few members of our group who seem to be getting on our nerves. They're the ones who are always five minutes late getting on the bus at every stop. 
They're the ones in the dinner line who hold everybody else up as they examine each piece of lettuce in the salad before putting it on their plate. Why is it that people's idiosyncrasies seem to show up when we're together in groups, and why do they cause such irritation? I'm not completely sure, but I'm glad our destination today is Mount Hermon, because I think it can help us find the answer. Mount Hermon rises 9,200 feet above sea level. It's the highest mountain in Israel. Dan and Caesarea Philippi are at the base of Mount Hermon, but you can't get a good view of the mountain from either site. They're just too close. So let's stop by the ancient city of Hatzor to get a better view. Mount Hermon is still 30 miles away, but from here we can see how it dominates the view to the north. But what does majestic Mount Hermon have to do with the always-late lettuce inspector who's now sitting in front of you on the bus? Well, to find the answer, we need to visit Jerusalem on one of the annual feasts of the Lord. Imagine having to crowd into the city of Jerusalem with this person and thousands of others three times each year as we gather as a nation before the Lord. It's supposed to be a time of spiritual encouragement, but it could easily become a time of personal irritation. And that's why Psalm 133 was included among the Songs of Ascents. This song, originally written by King David, focuses on the benefits of brotherly unity. And Mount Hermon is one of David's object lessons. It's possible David wrote the psalm after he was made king over all Israel, ending a period of civil war among the tribes. But whatever its original background, the later compilers of the psalms included it within the Songs of Ascents, those songs sung by the thousands of pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. The psalm begins with a simple declaration, Behold how good and how pleasant for brothers to dwell together united. Dwelling together wasn't the goal. It was to dwell together in unity of purpose and unity of mind. The root idea is to be one. Such unity, David writes, is both morally good and socially agreeable. It's right from God's perspective, and it's what keeps the fabric of society from unraveling. David then used two examples to illustrate the benefits of such unity. The first is found in verse 2, where David said, Dwelling together united has a sanctifying effect on those involved. He compares the benefits of such unity to the oil Moses poured on Aaron's head when he anointed him to be high priest. When Moses poured the anointing oil on Aaron, God said in Exodus 40 that Aaron and his sons were being set apart to a priesthood that will continue for all generations to come. As the fragrant anointing oil ran down Aaron's head onto his beard and then dripped onto his priestly garments, he was sanctified, set apart to God in a unique and special way. David is saying in the same way, dwelling together in unity helps set the believers of God apart to the Lord. So how does this work? Well, the writer of Hebrews suggests it happens as we encourage and support one another in our walk with God. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Being together encouraging each other, and demonstrating love and practical concern. In these ways, we help draw one another closer to God, the sanctifying effects of brotherly unity. David then illustrates in verse 3 the sustaining effect that brotherly unity can have on us, keeping us going during the difficult times in our lives. And it's here where he takes his readers on a majestic sweep of Israel from Mount Hermon to Mount Zion. Brotherly unity was like the dew of Hermon, falling on Mount Zion. 
David's illustration comes right from the dry summer months when no rain falls in Israel. On most summer days, a warm, moist breeze blows in from off the Mediterranean, and in the evening, when the sun goes down and the warmth radiates away into the clear night sky, the temperature can drop below the dew point, especially in the higher elevations. At over 9,000 feet, Mount Hermon receives a great deal of rain in the winter and a great deal of dew in the summer. And that dew helps nourish and sustain the trees and bushes that grow on its slopes. In the same way, brotherly unity has a sustaining effect on those who experience it. It's as if, David says, the heavy dew from Mount Hermon could somehow make its way down to the lower heights of Mount Zion, bringing the nourishing dew to sustain it through the dry summer. And just as God brought the physical dew to the heights of Hermon, so he promised to bestow his blessing on those who gathered to worship him in Jerusalem at the temporary meeting place erected on Mount Zion by King David. So what's the lesson we can take away from this encounter on Mount Hermon? Perhaps it's this. In an age of text messaging and tweets, we're in danger of substituting impersonal communication for personal interaction, of having Facebook replace actual FaceTime with those around us. And in doing so, we can become spiritually impoverished. So don't fret over the always late lettuce inspectors in your life. See if you can get together for a meal and ask about his or her spiritual journey. You might just discover that the lessons God has taught that person can help you in your spiritual walk. God might just use that person to draw you closer and encourage you in your life. Remember, it's good and pleasant when brothers can dwell together in unity. Thanks, Charlie. What a great reminder. You know, I find myself being one of those most impatient behind the slow lettuce inspectors and the <laughs> pokey people constantly late. Uh, thanks, John. It, it, it is. It's, uh, it's just a reminder to us uh, that we need to look beyond the surface and remember that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And, you know, that kind of a reminder never gets old. I think of the scripture that says we're going to be known by the love that we have for each other. First uh, John tells us if any man does not love his brother... Well, we're in big trouble. Thanks, Charlie. And you can hear today's program again, the devotional, our current events segment, uh, the interview that we featured, all at thelandandthebook.org. You can also hear the entire program if you download Moody Radio's free app, whether you have an iPhone or iPad or Android phone or tablet. Just search for Moody Radio at your favorite app store, and you can listen to The Land and the Book at the push of a button. Your email is always welcome. We love to hear how the program has connected with you, maybe uh, informed you of, a, of an angle that you weren't thinking about or reshaped your thinking, uh, caused you to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. What's your story? We'd love to hear it. Email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. That's thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Why not tell a friend about the land of the book? You know, we don't have an advertising budget. It's just you and me sharing the program with a friend. The Land of the Book is created by a team that includes Dan Anderson, Charlie Dyer, and I'm John Geiger. Thanks to the management at this station for carving out airtime for The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.